Okay. Well, welcome everyone. Welcome to the second week of our new Sunday School series on biblical counseling issues. From now until the end of the year, we're going to be touching on a whole host of issues like worry, communication, forgiveness, parenting, marriage, anger, and a few others. And today, today's lesson specifically is on bad memories, getting past your past. I also want to give credit where credit is due right at the outset and say that today's lesson is my adaptation of Ron's adaptation of this little booklet right here. So, so if you hear anything good, pro- probably not mine. My, probably not from me. If you hear anything bad, probably my fault. So we continue this morning looking at the issue of bad memories. And when I first heard this topic, I was like, huh, interesting. Didn't, wasn't as straightforward to me as some of the other ones like pride or worry. But as I thought about it more, I think, I think all of us can testify that from time to time, our past affects us, maybe even haunts us. It could be a huge sin we committed in the past or that was committed against us, or maybe a consistent pattern of sin in our lives. On the other hand, we may feel stings of betrayal and bitterness every time we hear a certain person's name come up. Perhaps we, we dwell on past angry outbursts that we had that affected people that we love. We desperately wish we could go back in time and, and make things right. With the, number, you know, with the number of people in this room, it's, it's near statistically impossible that, that no one here has experienced some form of sexual abuse. Those memories haunt us as well. We do foolish things in our ignorance there's even senseless tragedy that, that can strike. I specifically think of a missionary family I heard of who the husband on accident backed over their two-year-old. And so what, what do we do with things like that? What do we do with seemingly senseless tragedy like that? And sometimes no one's sin is directly to blame because accidents, tragedies happen in a fallen world like this one. As fallen sinners, living in this sin-cursed world, we can be sure that we will experience the destructive effects of both our own sin and being sinned against. The sins of others may directly affect us and be directly aimed at us at times, such as abuse at the hands of a spouse, or they may not even be directed towards us at all, yet still painful all the same, such as when a congregation's life is rocked by, this, by the adultery of one of its pastors. Memories like these live on, so we too will surely at times struggle with these things. What are we to do with these crippling, plaguing memories that rear their ugly heads, even in the present, and that threaten to soil our future? Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, who pastored for about 40 years, said, there is no more common difficulty than those who are miserable or who are suffering from spiritual depression because of their past, either because of some particular sin or sin patterns in their past. I was surprised to hear that, actually. I would have thought it would have been some other issue, but he says that is the most common difficulty that he has dealt with in pastoral ministry. So you're not close to being alone in this if you feel like you are. And thankfully, God in his word does provide abundant help with this problem. So let's begin by defining our goal. Go ahead and look at your note sheet at the top. Our goal is memory transformation. Most of us who deal with bad memories, I I think we're tempted to just want them to disappear, of course. We want to forget the past. We want it to go away. We would be more pleased with memory erasure than memory transformation, but that is not how God ordained it to be. Forgive and forget is common counsel, but it ignores the reality of how God created us. We're designed with with memories. So we, we 
many people try to eradicate memories through distracting idolatry. Others try to be more spiritual about it, but still end up trying to suppress their memories that they probably need to deal with. And the suppression of these can cause bitterness, rage, and despair to fester unnoticed. In, in all of these, whether idolatry or suppression, the goal is the same. It's to get the memories out of our minds. So thankfully, God in his word offers us hope in a better way. He does not just zap us and erase our memories. I think of men in black when I think of that, where they have those little sticks that erase your memories. But God, that's not how it works. He, he has a better plan. He has chosen to redeem them. He wants to transform them into something good, something that will make us more like Christ. Our memories can be opportunities for life-changing growth, and we can interpret them God's way instead of running away. And right at the outset, I want to say, by way of application, the most important thing for some of us in this room could be simply to share with a trusted brother or sister about a painful memory rather than trying to bear that burden alone. So now before we jump into to number two on the outline, I want to point out uh, that broadly speaking, number two of this lesson is going to be more applicable to memories of tragedy in our lives or of us being sinned against, while number three is going to be more directly applicable to our own sinful past. So keep those separate but related categories in mind as we continue on. All right, so... We're going to go to God's word now. Lowercase a on your notes says, God was in your past. He was not asleep at the wheel when tragedy struck. He was present and he intends to turn your past into something good. So please turn with me to Genesis 45. We're going to read verses four through eight. While you're, while you're turning there, I want to, want to remind us, we're going to read about Joseph's response to his brothers and to remind us of the background, Joseph's brothers did not do something minor. This was not a minor offense. This was not an argument they got into over politics or something like that. They literally conspired to kill him. And instead, they, they settled for, you know, just selling him into slavery. No big deal. It's, my point is it's, it's difficult to imagine a more stunning betrayal and it was also at the hands of his brothers, his own brothers, who should have had his own back. So let's read verses four through eight and see how Joseph responds. Would someone be willing to read Genesis 45, four through eight? Thanks, Sabrina. Thank you. Wow, a father to Pharaoh. So I want to hear from you guys. What, what strikes you from these verses? What, what sticks out to you from Joseph's response? Sold the uh, you know being bought by Potiphar and then also the 
know if it's being sold and then it's being uh, thrown in prison. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't use that phrase anywhere else in the narrative. Mm. It doesn't use it during the good times, doesn't use it during the, the dreams, doesn't use it during any of that. It just has it after each of the bad, bad events. Mm. Because we would expect God to be with us during the good times. Yeah. But everybody would expect, oh, God has forsaken him. That's why these bad times are coming upon them. I mean, that's what the, the three brothers of, uh, the three brothers, three friends of Job thought. Yeah, right. That was the common understanding yeah. of Peter when he asked Jesus in John chapter 9, of, you know, who sinned to make the, that this man was born blind, mm. him or his parents? Yeah. You know. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, but so it's, it just goes to show that, that uh, You know, no, God is still with him. Yeah, right. I mean, imagine imagine what that was like for Joseph because I think we can almost guarantee that he doubted that. He, he probably struggled with that. Has God forsaken me? Where is God in all this? Why would God let, let my brothers do this to me? Because it was an evil act. So one of the things that stuck out to me the most was when he, he told them to not be distressed or angry with themselves his humility in that is is just incredible it's like he's counseling them through their temptation to to drown in despair for their sin he's given them this lesson on bad memories so we see his graciousness and his faith in god um we also see it in genesis 50 20 as harrison pointed out and it it strikes me because I know if I was in his shoes, I would be tempted to say, well, I would, I would be tempted to think, okay, I get that God meant this for good, but you guys did it. Y'all did something evil. Y'all did not mean it for good, and I'm really mad. But he's able to, to extend just utter graciousness and forgiveness. So a true example for us to, to learn from. I'm surprised he didn't set the Egyptian army on them because he could have. Joseph goes on to say that it was God who sent him there, not his brothers, in verse 8. As Harrison already mentioned, in Genesis 50, he says, What they meant for evil, God meant for good. And it did do immense good. Let's not forget about that. Through Joseph, everyone was literally kept from starving to death. And most importantly, the family of Jacob, grandson of the patriarch Abraham, was able to survive. And this is the family that God had promised the Savior would one day come through, through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. So this, this caused his suffering. There was a tremendously good plan of the Lord, even in the evil that was carried out. Joseph was able to understand that God was in his past. God was at work in the evil done to him, and he was at work, of course, even though I'm sure Joseph couldn't discern how most of the time. So instead of lamenting over his past, merely he saw the redemptive hand of God at work. And I hope that helps us in our own situations. Go ahead and turn to Romans 8 with me now. We're going to start out reading verse 28 and 29. Yeah, go for it. So what's interesting is in, um, uh, is in, in verse 20, so like I said, those two verses, verse 2 and verse 21 of Genesis 39, both have that same phrase, the Lord is with Joseph. Yeah. But what's interesting is verse 21, which is after he's thrown in prison for being falsely accused of rape. He, uh, it doesn't just say that the Lord is with Joseph, mm. but now it, it, adds the phrase uh, just to make sure you get it it adds the phrase and showed mm. uh, and God showed uh, uh, the Lord with Joseph and showed him steadfast love mm. and wow. favor in the sight of uh, the uh, uh, the prison guard wow yeah amen thank you alright could somebody please read verse 28 and 29 in Romans 8 Thanks.
Thank you. So what is the good that Romans 8.28 refers to? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And, and in our own lives, what's like a more general way we could say that? What we, you know, we know that God causes all things to work together for our good, but, but what does that mean? Does that mean he causes all things to work together for our uh, material prosperity or our health or our, yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you. Yeah, anyone else? Yeah. 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 Amen. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. Verse 29 says for he for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so I think when when verse 28 says that God is causing all things to work together for good, it's it's referring to our primarily to our conformity to the image of Christ. And, and now I want to I back up and look at, look at this in the context of verse 18 in Romans 8. So I'm going to read verse 18 real quick. You can turn there with me. Verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So that's really helpful context, I think, for this conversation because... Paul was actually thinking about God working all things for good in light of the sufferings that he experienced. So it's helpful to see it in that light. Paul, it's it's encouraging that Paul needed this gospel perspective just like we do. But moving on to the next point on on your outline, your past does not control your future. I don't say this to be insensitive or to make light of our sin or suffering. I say it to encourage us. Of course, our past may influence us in different ways, our our present beliefs or actions or situation. But we need to remember that we are not a hostage to what we have done or what happened to us. It's not game over for us. In Christ, we are a new creation, forgiven and set free. So I, I want us to be empowered by this truth. And I want us to be empowered to know that we are responsible for how we interpret. We're not just responsible for how we respond to our past. We're even responsible for how we interpret our past. Based on that reality, God does not allow us to blame our current actions on what has happened to us. We're accountable for our present choices. And this is something I have to remind myself of a lot because it's, tempting if I feel that I've been sinned against of course I'm going to be tempted to feel justified in my angry or self-righteous response and I justify it by the fact that I was wronged but this is dangerous it's it's a trap being sinned against does not give us license to sin like it was said of Christ in first Peter we we are called to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly And, of course, how we respond to our most trying and painful moments is is merely revealing of our own character. And it's merely revealing of what's in our own hearts. If rage, doubt, or vengefulness come out when I'm shaken by sin or suffering, then the, the truth is those things were already there. They just hadn't yet been revealed. My circumstances are not to blame for my response The root problem is internal to me. The fundamental problem is internal to me, not external. So that's not that's not to say that no one's ever like a victim of sin or abuse, of course. But it is to say that our root problem 
is, is our own personal sin. We see this in, in Matthew 7. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 7 says it's what comes from within us that defiles us. So we need the sanctifying work of the Spirit so that we more and more grow into people who respond with faith, grace, and Christ-likeness no matter what is thrown at us. That's why Proverbs 4 also says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. We need to guard our hearts from lingering in the past. An example of this would be to avoid what one of my former pastors calls anger porn. What he means by that is, you know, imagine a a hurtful email that you received from someone that just, you know, you were maybe the email is extremely rude, uh, extremely ungracious, and you got to deal with the email, of course. But after you've dealt with it, I think at least sometimes we can be tempted to keep that email or that message and continue to open it, uh, to dwell on it. And every time we do, of course, we're going to be enraged of how unjustly we were treated. And so, so that's what I mean um, by that provocative title. And we need to avoid dwelling on these kinds of memories because they, it doesn't help us. It just stirs up bitterness and frustration within us. So we need to resist that temptation. Uh, you know, those, those memories will come to mind, but the question is, will we dwell on it or will we choose to say, Lord, help me entrust myself to you. You are the judge, not I. Will we trust him in that way? So we need to flood our hearts with the truth of who we are in Christ and how God can use those bad memories for his glory. At the very least, of course, this should be happening week in and week out as we gather to hear God's word preached, partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, we come together to be reminded that God, that Christ's very body was broken for us. He, he bled so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be reconciled, and so that we could have all things, even our bad memories, ultimately work out for our good in Christ. And I also want to say, God is a just judge, so we don't have to foolishly try to play judge ourselves. Go ahead and turn to Romans 12, just to think about this for a second. Um, Could someone please read verses 17 through 21? Thank you. So our response this is a high calling, but our response needs to be rooted in God's justice. Our trust in him is as the just judge. So also from this, we need to realize when we feel like God doesn't care about the wickedness carried out against us, we need to realize first and foremost, the wickedness was an affront to him. It was an attack against his holy character and against one who bears his very image, you. So God cares so much that the very sin committed against you will either result in eternal punishment in hell or will be paid for by the infinite worth of Christ's crucifixion on the cross. Let's leave judgment up to him. So the question for us is, will we trust God's ability to use evil for good and will we reflect this in our choices, in our responses to hurt? So we've seen how God is in our past and how our past ought not to control our future. Now looking at C under number two, let's talk about how our memories result from our interpretation of our past. Our memories result from our interpretation of our past. This is game-changing to realize that our memories are not bare facts. They're actually interpreted facts. What I mean by this is that we don't actually remember past events per se. We remember past events as we interpret them. This should be apparent to us all the time in our lives. Think of, for example, when you got in an argument with a family member or a friend. 
if you talked it through afterward, I'm sure you found that you had slightly different takes on what happened and even memories of what was said and in what sequence. Happens all the time. Our memories, as much as we like them to be, are not video recorders. Our memories are subject to selectivity, distortion, error, and self-justification. I'm not, of course, promoting relativism or saying that everyone's interpretation and recounting of an event is equally valid, but this should at least humble us and help us realize that our painful memories themselves are also subject to reinterpretation. We can actively choose to reinterpret our past through the lens of scripture and affirm trust in God, God's sovereignty and his goodness. So please turn with me now to Numbers 11, and we're going to see how this played out for the Israelites. So go ahead and turn to Numbers 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. All right, would someone be willing to read Numbers 11, verses 1 through 6? Sure. Thanks. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortune. When the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had fish, uh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but the manna. Thank you. So someone tell me, what's, what's happening here? What are the Israelites remembering? Just the good things. Yeah. It, it really probably wasn't free either. They were slaves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, or sorry, were you going to say something? Uh, that is, it's that, that old saying of, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So true. I, I think it's fascinating. In verse five, it says, we remember, and they, and they recount their time in Egypt. But what do they remember? They, th- all they say is all the good food they ate. I, I have my doubts as to if it was even good food, but they're, never mind the fact that they were literally enslaved for 400 years under absolutely crushing conditions, and they were constantly crying out to God to deliver them. So they conveniently left all that out and they interpreted their memories in a way that dishonored the Lord. Their complaining in part arose from a poor interpretation of their memories from Egypt. And in this interpretation was both caused by and led to further rejection of their God and his plans. It caused them to literally long for slavery instead of rejoice with gratitude at their deliverance in their status as God's chosen people. Think of the radical shift that that is. They went from, you know, they're delivered as God's chosen people, but their terrible interpretation made them long for slavery. They had a skewed interpretation of their memories. And so here's, here's what I want us to realize. Because memories are interpreted, they can also be reinterpreted. We need to see our past through the eyes of faith in the goodness of God that has been climactically revealed in the person and work of Christ. So as Paul said later in Romans 8, you don't have to necessarily turn back there, but but Romans 8.32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So it's like Paul saying, if God has already given up his very son for us, How can we now doubt his goodness and care, even even amongst what life throws at us? 
Like Joseph did, let us draw positive conclusions about God's all-powerful, all-wise, and all-loving purposes for all of our life. All right. So now that we've looked at three biblical perspectives on memory, I want us to now look at three marks of a redeemed memory, which is number three on your sheet. In other words, we're going we're gonna to think about what will a biblical perspective regarding our bad memories look like tangibly in our lives. And remember, as I said at the beginning, this next section is going to more directly deal with memories of our own past sin foolishness and ignorance so i think the first part applied more to when we've been sinned against so now uh go ahead and turn with me to first timothy one because the apostle paul's example can help us here and once you are there please could i have somebody read just Verses 15 and 16 for me. So your, your handout says 12, 17, when you only want 15, 16. Yeah, for now. Sorry, we're running short on time. But certainly we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the context. Amen. Paul is writing in a way that exalts the grace of God and the patience of Christ. He, he boldly states that he's the foremost of sinners. And so he has a gospel interpretation of his past and that his acknowledgement of that leads to the exaltation of God. So looking at the first blank under number three, the point is when we honestly face the heinousness of our past failure, it should produce a deepening repentance in our lives. It should produce a deepening repentance in our lives. So looking earlier in the passage, verse 13, Paul's not hiding his sinful past. He mentions his blasphemy, persecution of the church, and insolence in verse 13. And crazy to think about that as a Jew, his blasphemy was actually punishable by death, literally. It was a capital offense. And he was, of course, as we know, a violent man. He persecuted the church. He, was, he approved of Stephen's stoning in Acts 7. Yet he doesn't, he doesn't avoid these uncomfortable memories. He reminds himself and Timothy, his audience. Now, real quick, let's turn to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, it, uh, you know, starting in verse 26, is probably the most well-known passage in Ezekiel. But I want us to look at uh, some of the verses later after the famous part about uh, God giving us a heart of flesh and, and putting his spirit within us because it says something revealing to our topic. Um, and, you know, please. Yeah. Kind of running out of time. So let's just read verses 31 through 32. Who would be willing to do that? Awesome, thanks. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for all your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I laugh, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thank you. So, this passage is talking about the new heart and new spirit that God will put within his people. And according to verse 31, what is a result of this saving and cleansing work? Yeah. A realization about evil. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
they will remember their sin and loathe themselves. Some, of course, would push back and say that this is counterproductive or that it's incompatible with appreciating our salvation, but this is not the case. Like Paul, obviously, in 1 Timothy, even the justified Christian should never forget that they have a past of which they are right to be ashamed. There's no contradiction here between a present enjoyment and assurance of justification and a proper sense of shame about past sin. These both mark the maturing Christian. And the point is that, that the, the memory and shame of sin should simply serve to increase our praise. Calvin actually went so far as to say that only those who have learned well to be earnestly dissatisfied with themselves and to be confounded with shame at their wretchedness truly understand the Christian gospel. I want to I be clear here because, one, there's a difference between being ashamed and condemned. Being, we, we should be ashamed of our sin because of God's goodness and gracious salvation in Christ and recognizing how we sinned in light of that. But of course, as Christians, there is no condemnation for us. Romans 8, 1. For those in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. And I also do want to point out that there is an unhealthy and sinful kind of self-loathing too. This is a kind of self-loathing that would be overly consumed with the self. This is a self-loathing that is just fixated on sin and self-focused, and that marginalizes God's goodness and gracious salvation. But there is also, as we see in Ezekiel, a righteous and godly kind of self-loathing. And this is a self-loathing that grasps our wickedness with horror, but at the same time is actually God-centered because its end result is different than self-focus and despair. Its end result is deep appreciation for God's free grace. As, as a pastor once famously said, for every one look at your sin, take 10 looks at your savior. So shame for sin is not the goal. It's not the end. It is the means to the end of greater Christ-centeredness, gratitude, and even assurance of salvation. I say assurance because it should take away any hope or confidence that we may still be tempted to put in ourselves and redirect it to be placed more firmly in Christ. So deepening repentance is the first mark of a redeemed memory. The second mark is a heightened gratitude, a heightened gratitude, in particular gratitude for God's mercy to us in Christ. So go back with me to 1 Timothy 1. In the passage here, again, we see that Paul doesn't merely recall his past sin, but he also praises God for his grace. His interpretation of his past results in worship, which happens in verse 17. Read with me. 1 Timothy 1, 17. Well, I'll start in 16. Paul says, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, he's saying foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Then he praises God and says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul's gospel-filtered memory resulted in spontaneous praise. Jesus saves and transforms the worst of sinners like Paul, and God is exalted. Paul lets his shameful past highlight God's grace. Christ should be the focus of our past, our present, and our future. He is our hope through looking at him against the black background of our sin should lead to heightened gratitude. That, that will lead to heightened gratitude. Another example I want to bring to mind is seen in Luke 7, 36 through 50. You don't have to turn there, but just to recap quickly. The, the sinful woman breaks her jar of perfume open, this costly, costly gift. She pours it on Jesus' feet uh, or his head, 
can't remember. Uh, she, she cries all over his feet, washes them, wipes them with her hair. And the Pharisees are like, oh my gosh, this lady is a disgrace. Um, and Jesus rebukes them because they, the Pharisees, when they entered, when Jesus entered their home, they showed bare minimum of hospitality, it seems. Whereas this lady goes all out, like she had nothing, but she, she anointed Christ and, and honored him in such a profound way. And so the moral of the story, according to Jesus, was that um, he who has forgiven little loves little. So the Pharisees who didn't see the weight of their sin, they don't, they don't care about, you know, this, this Messiah, but this, this sinful woman who, who sees the depth of her need, she can't do anything but pour out her, her greatest treasure at Christ's feet. So this is not also, of course, to say that that, that woman was more sinful than the Pharisees because or that some of us are forgiven less than others because we all bear a cosmic debt for our rebellion against an infinitely holy God. So from that perspective, uh, it's, it's, we're all on a level, level playing field. And so it is, though, to say that some people will recognize that they have been forgiven more than others will. That's just a fact. And so to recognize more that we've been forgiven will result in more love and gratitude toward God. And it will also bear tremendous fruit in our relationships with one another, especially within the body of Christ. Because I, I think we can, speaking from experience, we would all affirm that it is those who are most impatient, ungracious, harsh, and vindictive who are, those, those who are like that are usually those who grasp the least the depth of their own sin. To grasp our own sin is to, to make us profoundly humble and, and gracious and patient with others. So now, looking at the last mark, the last mark of a redeemed memory is knowing that my past will enable me to have a broader effectiveness in helping others. That C on your outline, a broader effectiveness in helping others. After Paul describes himself as the worst sinner in verse 15, notice what he declares in verse 16. Why did Christ display his unlimited patience towards Paul? He did it as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul saw his life as a pattern for what God will do for others. Paul's story should breed hope for his hearers. Our past should, of course, increase our sensitivity and our compassion for others because we can relate to anyone's failures. We can offer up our lives as a as as an example of of God's grace and and his graciousness at work because our wrongs our many sins did not end our life or our relationship with God so neither must they end those to whom we're ministering and and also of course we we know it helps us when we minister to others because we know that but for the grace of God so go I if not for God's grace, we, we are capable of committing any and every sin. And that, with, without that realization, it's going to be really hard to not look down on others at times. So, we need to share with others the reason for the hope that we have in Christ. Before, before I wrap up and conclude um, and open time for questions, if you have any, I, I brainstormed some other things, and, and I want to hear from y'all as well. What do you guys think are some other benefits of a redeemed memory and consciousness of our past sins? What do you guys think are some other benefits of a redeemed memory and consciousness of our past sins? I have to live that again. 
I would probably be disappointed. Yeah. Because I've just extracted yeah. the parts that made me feel a certain way, and then that that became my my uh, my memory. Amen. That's really wise. Thank you. Someone over here going to say something? Yeah, Norm. Yeah, I, uh, like, you know, that you said, there is a particular verse that I believe is Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's cer- certainly, though we don't get our memories erased as Christians, you're right. We, we should not dwell on these things that is so unproductive and unhelpful to dwell on. So, so yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, any, anything else? If I may add to this. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. I was just thinking, Andrew, on the, the point that you made about the uh, deepening repentance. Um, I was thinking of in Romans 6 when it talks about that aspect of, of shame. Um, in Romans 6, where it says, Paul's making the argument here to live in that freedom that you've been called into in Christ. You're not a slave of sin anymore. And he calls them to remember their lives yeah. back then, where he says in Romans 6, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Mm. Right? Yeah. So he's calling them to think back and think of the shame of that life and the freedom that you've been called into Christ. So he calls them to remember that in order to live in that mm. gratitude that we ought to be yeah. living in, and the freedom that God has called us into. So there's a help even as God calls us to think back on our past, to look at it through the lens of his word so that we can remember the futility of that life and the enslavement that we were in and we might live in the freedom that he's called us into. Yeah, amen. Thank you. That's so true. Yeah, real quick, a a couple other things I thought of uh, in addition to what we've already mentioned. One is similar to a child who's burned by a hot stovetop. Our, a redeemed memory should make us more wary and watchful in the face of temptation. Because just because we're in Christ, it's not an excuse for us to be unwise or to put ourselves in foolish situations that are particularly tempting for us. So that's another thing. And another thing that I thought of is embracing our, our sinful past with a gospel lens can also be very helpful and disarming in conversations with, with unbelievers. It's sometimes thought of Christians that we're stuck up, that we think of, that we think we're better than, than everyone else. When in fact, nothing could be further from the truth, because um, through, as we've talked about, through a, a right biblical view of ourselves, we realize like there's nothing even separating me from Hitler. Like I, I could have, I could have done that, if if not for God's grace. And so, so I think it's also helpful to. Uh, in, in conversation, in gospel conversations, making it clear that we were, were merely recipients of undeserved grace. We, we deserve nothing but God's punishment. Uh, and and Paul, Paul brought that up. Paul brought up his own sin with the churches he wrote to as well. Um, all right. So, oops, we are almost out of time. So to conclude and summarize... We may not be able to prevent sinful or painful memories from arising, but we shouldn't dwell on them. And we also don't need to feel worried 
when we can't magically erase or escape them. We, this is only natural because we're creatures with functioning memories. And so what, what we are called to is to reinterpret them biblically and trust God's goodness and wisdom, even when we're forced to live by faith and not by sight in this. So these memories don't have to destroy or derail us. In Christ, our past is redeemed. And through this redeemed memory, God will be further glorified in your life as you and use you to glorify himself in the lives of those around you. So I want to open it up for maybe maybe just if there's one pressing question, I think we have time for that. Uh, if not, please talk to me or Ron or any of the other pastors later and would love to talk if you have questions. Any, any pressing questions? Amen. That's great. All right, let me, let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, you are good to us. We confess that we struggle at times to believe that and fully grasp that. And, and so we, we thank you that we can always lean on your good, perfect, loving, just, wise character. And we pray that you will help us, help us to reinterpret our memories help us to have godly self-loathing that terminates in praise for you and gratitude and assurance in our salvation and and help us to love and encourage one another in these things we pray now that we will uh, as we uh, go to worship you will we hear your word with faith and repentance and joy and we pray all this in christ's name amen thanks guys